Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello and welcome to another episode of Wessex LMC's podcast. My name's Ed Rendell. I'm a GP based in Wiltshire and I'm a medical director with Wessex LMC's. Joined today by John Perry, who's a counsellor and coach. Um, nice to meet you, John. Nice to meet you too, Ed, and thanks very much for this invitation. Thank you. Um, we've worked with you in the past, not myself, but with the LMC. So uh, um, it's good to have you on the podcast again. It, today we're going to talk about imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Yep. So why why are we talking about this, firstly? Uh, it's something which has become, uh, I suppose, something of a focus of my work uh, recently, because partly I've just become aware, I suppose, how many people identify as having imposter syndrome, at least to a degree. Um, and one of the things I sometimes do when I talk to groups is I ask people to show me uh, a number of fingers. So if they hold up 10 fingers, they absolutely have imposter syndrome. <laughs> And if they hold me up five, then they kind of have it a bit, but it's not crippling. Uh, and it, it's very interesting that I very rarely get people hold up no fingers at all. So it, it's not that you have it or you don't have it. It's more of a continuum, if you like. And in my experience, most people, particularly high achieving people, have it at a kind of five, six, seven, or even eight, nine, ten kind of level. Yeah, fascinating. I, I um I think it probably changes over time a bit because I think there's various points in my life. If you said that, I think I'd be like nine, ten. Um, <laughs> I think, and but I think you're right. I don't think it sort of disappears. It's, I suppose, that commonality is the thing. We had, we had a pre-chat about a month ago about this and said we were going to have a discussion. I've sort of been asking a few people, and it's been it's been surprising. Yep, yep, yeah, I yeah, I recognise that. I get that. And I was watching a documentary on uh, Lewis Capaldi. Um, Recently, I think he he was um, describing how he mentioned to Ed Sheeran that he was um, struggling with feeling an imposter, and Elton John sent him an email saying, "This is rubbish. You're you're brilliant." And uh, I mean, how common is it? How, how are we, do we know how common it as a thing is? Well, there's a couple of things I'd say in relation to that. The first thing is the antidote to imposter syndrome actually isn't being told you're brilliant. Okay, because that's still based on some someone else's assessment or analysis of your worth. Um, so that was the first thing I said. I, if it's okay, I'll, I'll kind of come back to that. So, yep. you know, I, I'm not okay providing this talk goes well. And I'm not okay if I get you to reassure me that I've been brilliant. Because actually what happens if I make that mistake in my thinking is this, this becomes suddenly a very high stakes event for me. Um, and actually, I'm unlikely to talk very well or very fluently if I've got this sense that it's a very high stakes event and there's a huge amount on the line. So imposter syndrome essentially is that feeling that many high achieving people have that they are undeserving of their success, that they have kind of got on in their careers through luck or chance or some sort of fluke, that they are not fully deserving of their seat at the table, that they're not nearly as smart as other people seem to think they are. And worse still, that any minute now they're about to be discovered or found out. So that's why it's linked to a sense of high anxiety, and particularly social anxiety. It was first identified in the in the late 1970s by two American uh, academics at uh, Georgia State University. And, and their research and, and subsequent research has suggested that typically it is experienced more by women than men. But the strongest link, actually, is it's typically experienced more by people from fairly humble backgrounds, fairly humble origins, than those from very privileged backgrounds. So people, if you like, who have maybe flown a little bit further than either they or their families or others around them kind of assumed 
in their early days that they would. And so there's that sense of having kind of broken free and being a bit uncertain that that they kind of deserve their, their seat at the table. In fact, people from very privileged backgrounds tend to experience the opposite, which is often a sense of entitlement, referred to now as entitlement syndrome, which is this kind of belief that they deserve to lead an organisation because of the bed they were born in or the, the school that they've been to. Um, one of the interesting facts is that Boris Johnson was the 30th British Prime Minister to have gone to Wheaton, which is quite a statistic if you think about it. Yes. And I guess if you go to Wheaton, it occurs to you, you could be Prime Minister. But actually, the school I went to hasn't provided any Prime Ministers and is probably unlikely to, because I doubt anyone who goes to this school I went to is going to have the thought, maybe one day I can be Prime Minister. But So it's, it's a very different way of kind of framing what, what's possible in our lives. And people who kind of exceed... Uh, their sense of what's possible. Often, if they come from fairly humble origins, have that sense of, actually, do I really deserve this success? Am I as smart as people think I am? Or am I about to be found out? Yeah, I've, I, yeah. as I said, we we touched on that a tiny bit. I don't want to get all the detail that we've got today, but um, I was having an interesting chat with a, um, another GP who'd, um, similar as me, being to a comprehensive school, and they were describing how in their medical school, there was quite a divide across this and people were some people were sort of turning up to lectures in cars and things like that and it, it's um yeah you can sort of see the logic of of why you would not feel you're in the right place in some way it's um i mean what 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 sort of um i guess with that information is that just helpful awareness or is there something else that is helpful to if you're an individual in that situation that can be useful to to know with that information yeah, I think there's a couple of things there. Um, I mean, for me, that the most important aspect of the whole area of imposter syndrome is the recognition that typically people who experience imposter syndrome are pursuing self-esteem over developing a secure sense of self-worth. And there is a, a, a far too much emphasis on self-esteem, in my own, my own view, in, in society, which is this idea that you have to earn the right to be okay. And many people have that. They, they think, well, I'm not currently okay, but if I come top of my exams, then I will be okay. If I win the race, I'll be okay. If my latest social media posting gets a thousand likes, then I'll be okay. And the thing about this is, is none of those things can possibly be guaranteed. So your sense of being okay, if you're pursuing self-esteem through external reward, recognition, success, external validation, is you'll only ever have a very fragile grip on it. Um, because what if you don't come top in the exam? What if you fail the exam? What if you don't win the race? What if you pull up injured? What if your Facebook posting gets no likes? Then clearly your self-esteem would take a, a hit. But it's actually much worse even than that, because if you have a sense that in order to be okay, you have to win the race, come top of the exam, et cetera, even if you achieve those things, you won't be satisfied. Because if you come top in the exam with 90%, could you not have got 95 even if you win the race, could you not have run faster? Even if you do get a thousand likes to your social media posts, could you not have got 5,000? So people who are pursuing self-esteem based on external reward, recognition, success, ex validation from others, they kind of live their whole lives like a dog chasing a fast car. They're never going to catch it. They're never going to get enough of it. And they'll never be satisfied. And that's underneath a lot of the kind of experience of imposter syndrome is that this sense of not being enough and needing external validation whereas self-worth is the opposite of that it's recognizing you were born worthwhile you were born okay a work in progress for sure and you always will be 
but you were born fundamentally worthwhile, fundamentally okay. And these are not qualities you have to earn. They are absolutely your birthright. But if you focus on developing a secure sense of self-worth, then actually you don't find yourself endlessly questioning whether or not you deserve your seat at the table or whether you deserve to be made chair of a medical committee or anything else, because your understanding is that you're a work in progress, not yet the finished article. And in fact, you never will be, but you are fundamentally okay all the same. Yeah, and no, I think that sort of chimes me. I've, I've done a bit of reading the last couple of years, and I think there's a um, Brene Brown. I think she does some work on sort of I am enough, that sort of like uh, concept, I'm, I'm okay, I'm enough, and then I'm a work in progress, as you say. With that sort of, um, it, it feels a little bit like you have to almost like a choice, make a choice, uh, or you sort of have to re-remember sometimes that self-worth is the way to go. Is, is that a natural feeling that people get funneled into self-esteem a little bit more? in uh you know our day and age essentially with things well, we see absolutely. all around us on social media i think part of it is social media part of it is education you know i mean it's a story i've told previously but before the first lockdown i was talking at a number of primary schools and a, and a, a primary school head uh introduced me I was, I was there to talk to a group of seven-year-olds and they all sat cross-legged on the assembly uh, in the assembly f- hall floor and um he said, we've got a guest speaker, John, he's from Southampton University, he's going to talk to us about mindfulness, which is what he'd asked me to talk about. But and then he said, but before we hear from John, just a word about your SATs tests next week. These are the most important tests you'll ever take in your lives. And the fear in the room was palpable. You could touch it, you could you could feel it. And, and people were crying and shaking and just, and he really in, induced this sense. Of, of anxiety and, and so and then he introduced me and i said well i will talk about mindfulness but before i do a word about what he just said that's absolute rubbish you know you're fine on the morning of this test you're fine when you go to bed that night as well and nothing that happens that day can possibly touch that you don't have to earn the right to be okay because you already are and the relief was huge so i think there was a sense in which it starts very young and that yeah. a lot of people get the the message that in order to be okay they do have to pass every exam they do have to pass a driving test first time around. They do have to have 2.4 trophy children and a perfect house and everything else, rather than kind of accepting that actually we're all of us works in progress and no one is universally gifted. You know, absolutely no one. We all have our strengths, our limitations, and actually it's our limitations that that make us unique, you know, in quite an important way. I think it is important to remember that if, if all of us were perfect, then we would all be replaceable by anybody else. You know, our imperfections are the very things that make us irreplaceable. But everyone's imperfect in their own ways. You know, no one is universally gifted. You know, it certainly gives you some areas to, you know, I'm saying not perfect. And it, it gives you areas to grow into. I think that's a helpful thing. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's all chimes in me. I, I, I um, you know, in this role and stuff, you, you sort of you, you suddenly find yourself in a meeting with leaders of councils and chief executives mm-hmm. of hospitals, and you're sort of like. I'm about to say something and make a point and i guess for me it's sort of been um I've, I've just found it helpful being aware of the concept and i haven't really got into it too much just sort of like almost i suppose some of my accidents are like that's okay that i feel this and you know i'm going to do it anyway and and carry on um have have you been affected by this in the past and how what's your sort of how have you approached sort of if you felt this way yeah, absolutely. And um, it sounds like like yourself came from fairly humble origins. And, and then I've, mm. I had a slightly strange career in that I, for a while in the early 1990s, was a police trainer, but I wasn't a police officer. 
So I kind of was questioning, you know, do I deserve to be amongst all these officers when I'm, I'm not one? And then for eight years, I worked in the Department of Nursing at Bournemouth University as a lecturer, but I was never a nurse. So again, I had that same question. And then for 14 years, I worked in the Faculty of Medicine at Southampton Uni as a non-medic. And so I was always kind of thinking, you know, how can they've employed me when, you know, that, you know, that somehow I've joined this club I'm not sure I'm a full member of. Um, but for me, that I mean, the deciding factor really was was when I was part of a, a team looking at how do we respond to, uh, you know, tragic events such as students taking their lives as a consequence of failing exams. And it struck me very, very, very keenly that, you know, if, if the students that took their lives having failed exams, we're talking about medical students, if they understood, really understood that they didn't have to pass the exams to be worthwhile, they already were, you know, if they knew that they were okay when they woke up on the morning of the exam, and they were going to be okay when they went to bed that night, and nothing that happened between those two points could touch that, well, firstly, they would have been much more likely to pass their exams, because if they couldn't answer the first question, they wouldn't have panicked, they'd have just calmly moved on to question two. And if they hadn't passed their exams the first time around, maybe they could have passed their resits. But even if they hadn't passed their resits, they could now be happily pursuing a career other than medicine. But if if you overinvest your sense of being okay and worthwhile in exam success or becoming a doctor or anything else, that's incredibly fragile because life doesn't come with those sorts of guarantees. And you know, for me, that that was the kind of thing that really made me think about how important this is. That you know, you don't have to earn the right to be worthwhile or okay, and you certainly don't have to pass exams to be worthwhile or okay. Um, and I think somehow that message isn't getting through to the very people who most need to hear it. No, um, thanks for sharing that. I wasn't aware of that. It's really powerful, the motivation. I, I guess that's the point of this. I mean, what what would you, so people like listening and saying, that, yep, that chimes with me. I put my hands up and I'm sort of hitting enough of this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm listening on. So what, what would be the key messages or the key things that you would say to, to those people listening? Yeah, that... That every child is born worthwhile, born okay, is a work in progress for sure, but will always be okay. And these are not qualities you ever have to put on the line. As I was, And the ironic thing is that there's something in psychology called the law of reverse effect, which basically means that in certain areas, the harder you try to achieve something, the less it's going to happen. Uh, so sleep, for example, follows the law of reverse effect. If you lie in your bed trying to force yourself to sleep, you're not going to sleep. <laughs> when you relax about it, sleep happens all by itself. So... But also self-esteem follows the law of reverse effects. The harder you try to grasp it and get it, the more it moves away and becomes unattainable. And so that's the first thing is to recognize that you don't need validation from other people. Uh, technically, that's called other esteem. You know, I don't need people to think well of me in order that I can think well of myself. So kind of abandon that, you know, don't invest over much in what people think of you. And, but you can see this all the time. It's very, very common that people have this notion that in order to think well about themselves, other people have to think well about them too. I mean, as a simple example would be many people would find it very, very difficult to reverse part their car into quite a tight spot if they were aware that other people were watching because they're so concerned about the impression they're making and the, that they could, there's not enough of their attention to devote to the business of parking. Whereas if they don't give a damn about the impression they're making, they're probably going to get in first time or second time at least. So don't overly invest in, in being concerned about what others think of you. 
And I can't remember who initially said it, but there was someone quite famous who said something along the lines of, you know, people who worry excessively about what others think of them would do well to remember how seldom they do. So yeah. it's not, you know, we don't, I'm, you know, I, I don't need your approval in order to be okay. And ironically, once I give up the quest for your approval, I'm much more likely to get it. Because one of the other defining features is that people who are chasing self-esteem and have poor self-worth and a lot of imposter syndrome think that in every social encounter, they have to be interesting. And so they talk too much and they move the agenda onto themselves too much. And it becomes all about them. And ironically, by, by, by trying to be interesting, everybody finds them incredibly dull because they're only ever talking about themselves and their achievements. Actually, people with high self-worth focus on being interested. They're not, I, you know, they don't have to dazzle with how interesting they are. So they would walk into a room, any room, and say, oh, hi, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Really, what do you find is so enjoyable about that? That's fascinating. Tell me some more. So if you're interested in other people and you give up the quest of being interesting, ironically, people find you really interesting. And it sounds a bit unfair almost. It's, um, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's imagine you're, like, you're wearing your best like whites and tennis sort of thing and you <laughs> you've got stuck in some mud and then you know if you pause and get someone to help you out you just have to just get your your shoes clean and your socks but you know it just seems like i'm stuck and you flail around and then you you get out but you're covered in mud and you know almost a lot of this like the the natural default thing feel almost makes it worse and it, i guess that's that's the benefit of raising this awareness so people can understand and have awareness and and choose a response to it. The other thing I was just just curious about is, I presume this affects this can affect everyone at any level. So, you know, perhaps if we both suddenly became prime minister, it would be a little bit, oh, this is a high position. <laughs> but it, it, you know, I guess this is perceptional position and where where you feel you are relative to where you think you should be. So, presumably, this can affect anyone at any level if they feel a perception of of uh, they're in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you really raise an interesting point, isn't it? It's one of the principles in management, isn't it? That very often people are promoted to the level of their incompetence because they're very competent just below that level. Um, and in fact, I, I do think there are people who could do with a bit more imposter syndrome. And again, Boris Johnson comes to mind. I mean, he, his sense of entitlement was such, he still seems not to quite believe what's going on and that people are still finding fault in him. I think he's the only person who doesn't find fault in himself, actually. Um and I think it's it's an interesting one because we you know we are all to some extent products of our history, products of our upbringing, products of our environment, uh, and this creates within us perhaps a, a sense of who we are, our identity, and and that creates within us a sense of our destiny. You know what what is achievable for us, and but all of that is kind of constructive. You know, it's not given; it's not given at birth, certainly. Um, and I think we we kind of lose sense of the fact that it's constructed sometimes, and 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 take it as real. And, and that's true of many, many things, you know, like it, it's a bit like we make up a word like personality, which is a fairly recent invention. And then we forget we made it up. And then people say, well, I can't do that because of my personality. Well, you, you know, you don't have a personality. It's just an invention, really. You just have ways of behaving and you could possibly change your ways of behaving, which would make that possible. And we, we you know, we always look at the world through lenses and um, sometimes we forget we're wearing them. Yeah, I was, I was, I was listening to a history book the other day and uh it's only relatively recently that everyone everyone accepted that the uh, the Earth was round and spinning around the sun, and you know, it's not miles back that everyone was like, "Nope, very flat," and we built everything. <laughs> but you know, and that's a massive shift in how you perceive things. So I think you know, having a bit of curiosity and questioning of 
how we're perceiving things as we are is is helpful with uh with things i think um that's been really helpful thank you john thanks for your time to to put this across just an opportunity for any last thoughts on yourself but also um where can people get help for this i mean i've got some generic things if uh, there's nothing specific but if someone's saying like yep this is chiming for me where could they get more information where could they get help if you like, I can I can make a few uh, recommendations, and I'll, I'll perhaps think about what would be the, the perhaps the best titles to recommend, and I'll, I'll send you some links to those. Um, I mean, if it, if it does result in some sort of, sort of kind of crippling anxiety, particularly social anxiety, I think one one of the most helpful things is just to abandon completely the pursuit of self esteem. You know, abandon the notion that you have to earn the right to be okay, or that you are only okay if you're getting lots of kind of recognition and plaudits from other people. It's ironic that when you stop pursuing self-esteem, your self-worth inevitably goes up all by itself. And it just it's just a very natural process. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And obviously, we've got information on our website for more generic help if you need it. There's um, uh, Practitioner Health, Wellbeing Hubs, and we're happy to signpost and direct if anyone wants to come back to us um, with things. But um, thank you for your time, John, and really, um, really powerful hearing your your motivation to to make this podcast and to make a difference in people's lives so thank you very much my pleasure thanks so much for the chance wessex lmc's supporting you and your practice